0: This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is the double black swan event in the offshore drilling industry. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by KPMG's Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. Many people around the world consider the oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia and the COVID-19 pandemic a double black swan event for the energy sector. Regina Mayer, KPMG's global and U.S. head of energy, connected with Jeremy Thickpen, president and CEO of Transocean LTD, on April 2nd, 2020, to discuss the double black swan event in the offshore drilling industry. So Jeremy, we've started
1: 2020 with, literally unprecedented conditions, and I know unprecedented is an overused word, but I I can't think of anything uh, different. You know, we've got this major loss in fossil fuel demand with many of these shelter-in-place orders, coupled with a lack of supply constraint. It's conspired to send crude prices absolutely through the floor. You know, what are your thoughts relative to this market environment today?
2: (laughs) Well, that's a broad question, Regina. Um,
1: Uh, (laughs) I know you're up to it, Jeremy.
2: <laughs> Many have uh, have called this the uh, double black swan event, with uh, with of course the 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 war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, the war on U.S. shale uh, primarily, and the war for market share uh, driving uh, supply growth, uh, tremendous supply growth at really low discounted oil prices. Uh, so that was that was one element of it, and then on the other side, you know, the the global spread of, of COVID nineteen uh, has sent uh, everybody you know into isolation, and so. The supply side of the equation has dropped off tremendously as well, and so the, the combination of those events have just been absolutely devastating for oil prices, as you say. And so um, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, discouraging. Uh, we had uh, just gotten to the point within our business where we started to see, obviously, the recovery in the harsh environment space uh, with day rates moving up and our utilization of our highest spec assets being 100%. Uh, so that was very encouraging for us, and we were just starting to get some traction in the ultra-deep water markets where utilization of our active fleet was, was going up and almost 100%, and day rates uh, were starting to, to move as well. Uh, and, in fact, we announced, I think it was four or five contracts uh, at the beginning of this year that we secured in, in late Q4 and early Q1 uh, that all set new um, new standards for ultra-deep water day rates uh, following the, the, the downturn we've experienced since the, the end of 2014. So we were we were really encouraged entering the year that we were we were in the early stages of a, of a global recovery uh, and then again, you get this double black swan event, and it's just put everything on on hold. Um, you know, I could I could talk a bit about how we are managing this operationally, um, because that's that's been a question that uh, that we received. Um, candidly, I could not be prouder of our team, um, our operations team, our HR team, our travel team, our global security team have all been working in coordination uh, to try to manage through uh, this crisis. We currently have 30. Uh, floating rigs on contract in nine different countries. Um, Each of those rigs uh, will will carry anywhere between 100 and 200 uh, members of the crew. Um, Most of those uh, crews have to be changed out uh, every three. uh, Now we've moved some of those to four weeks. Uh, And so think about the travel restrictions in each of these jurisdictions that change every day. Think about all of the flight cancellations uh, think about just trying to keep your crews healthy and safe with that many people coming in and off your rigs on on a regular basis, and and making sure that COVID-19 doesn't find its way to a rig and then spread across those hundred to two hundred crew members. It has been a Herculean task, uh, and the team has been has been up to it. I mean, the we we, stood, we got out in front of this a little bit early. I think uh, as soon as this. Uh, um, as soon as COVID-19 started to surface in, in Southeast Asia, we implemented protocols at the heliports. So anybody that was going to fly out to one of our rigs had to complete a, a travel survey and then also get a health screen, which included a temperature check. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the first line of defense for us. Um, and then once it started to spread globally, obviously we did that at all the heliports uh, uh, around the world that were flying out to any of our rigs, but we also implemented other protocols uh, in terms of um, spacing, distancing, uh, obviously, um disinfectant and our procedures around that um just i mean one thing after the other just to try to do everything we could to keep uh, keep our crew healthy and safe uh, and so far i'm proud to report that we have been we've had one confirmed uh, covid 19 case on on one of our rigs down in brazil uh quickly isolated the individual uh, also quickly identified the people uh, on the rig that he had been in close contact with during his stay uh in total there are 19 uh, crew members that we uh, we isolated and safely evacuated from the rig, and, and they are now in quarantine. Uh, and operations went on with without a hitch, and no other symptoms for any of the other crew members. So, uh, the team's done a great job uh, uh, offshore, uh, onshore. Uh, we got out in front of this before uh, you know Houston issued their stay-at-home uh, decree. We we actually were a week in front of them. So we've been working remotely uh, for the last three weeks, which is. Uh, Take some getting used to, but uh, again, our IT team was up to the challenge. Um, we participate in we use Teams uh, as our platform for for video conferencing. Um, and as of right now, the last I heard from our our CIO was that we're over six thousand team meetings per day uh, across the organization. So uh, we've we've managed to be very productive. Um, so it's uh, it's been a challenge, but uh, but so far we're we're managing through it, which is uh, uh, very encouraging.
1: That's great. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for that overview. And I, I, it does seem to me that the cruise ships, the Navy uh, vessels, those are some of the, the most challenging environments to keep people safe and healthy. So thank you for outlining those. It sounds like you have done a Herculean effort. What about on the home front? I know you got kids at home. How, how's everybody handling working together in this environment?
2: Uh, we're, we're managing some days better than others. <laughs> so... Um, uh, we're, we're doing okay. We have the added challenge, and this is probably more information than you want. But my my wife fractured her ankle uh, about three and a half four weeks ago, and and had to get it surgically repaired, and so she's been pretty much out of commission. Uh, and then I have three teenagers who are, are all uh, going a little bit stir crazy. Uh, so for me, I have my my job at Transocean, obviously. Then I've got to do all the grocery shopping, all the cleaning, all the cooking. Um, don't feel sorry for me. I'm managing. <laughs> but it, is, uh, <laughs> it, it has been uh, a little bit stressful at times around here. But we're, we're all coping. And, in fact, we're probably, obviously, spending a lot more family time together doing doing things that we probably normally wouldn't do, you know, just getting outside together, playing some basketball just as a family, no one else. <laughs> um, we, we are isolated. Um, but board games and watching movies together, So that, that's, been, that's been actually a, a, a good piece of this.
1: It has been a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways. We have to keep keep focusing on the positives. Yeah. What about no, no. the uh, long term? No, go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, no, I no, said no doubt. I, I agree with you.
1: Yeah. So, what about the long term repercussions? Because there is a view that low crude prices will be with us for a long time. You know, we have demand destruction of somewhere between twenty to twenty five million barrels per day. It's twenty to twenty five percent off of normal and there's crude stockpiles just building all over the world, the world could be awash in crude. Some are saying it could go down to single digits. There are some markets that are already negative. Is this potentially the death of deep water? What is your view?
2: I I don't think it's the the death of deep water. Um, Thank you for pinning that unbelievably depressing uh, outlook. Uh, though to start this question, <laughs>
1: sobering. I'm sorry, for prefer sobering.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sobering. Um, again, we, there are two sides of the equation here. I think I think once the the world uh, contains COVID-19, people can get back to their normal lives. The economies around the world can get moving again. Uh, obviously, that will create demand for for energy, uh, which will be supplied primarily by oil and gas. And so, we, we need to solve that side of the equation first. Um, and, and I think I think we will. Um, and and I think we'll do that within the next. Couple of months, I hope. Um, and, and once we can get global economies churning again, that'll that'll address the the demand side. Then we have to address the supply side. And you're right, uh, stockpiles uh, around the the globe, um, the market share war uh, between Russia and Saudi Arabia at the expense of U.S. shale. Um, my hope is uh, that we we get the COVID-19 contained. That's obviously first and foremost, and that we get six to 12 months down the road uh, and and Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia will will believe. I think at that point in time, um, the U.S. land market is going to be pretty much devastated, and I think it'll be difficult um, to get financing to to kind of restart that that shale engine. Um, there will still be players in that space, and they'll still do very well. I just don't think you're going to see the rash of independence that really drove the shale boom in the U.S. Uh, going forward. I think that's going to be a real challenge. And at that point in time, once once Saudi Arabia and Russia believe that they've won that battle. I think that they start to curb production to raise oil prices. So I think oil prices go from, say, the $20 range, or maybe they dip lower. Um, maybe you get, a, you know, half of the the losses back once COVID-19 is contained, and then hopefully you, you get down the road. Um, and, again, that could be six months, 12 months, maybe even more, um, that, uh, that uh, Russia and Saudi uh, coordinate to to curb production a bit, and and then take oil prices even higher. Um, as it relates to to ultra deep water, it, you know we are as Transocean uh, very fortunate to have um, some long term high day rate contracts that were negotiated before the downturn began in two thousand and fourteen. Um, those contracts and and the backlog associated with them um, will will steer us through uh, the next couple of years with respect to to liquidity. Um, we have uh, the, the four. Uh, 10-year contracts on the new builds that are drilling for Shell in the Gulf of Mexico at at high day rates. We've got four rigs um, drilling for Equinor and Norway uh, at at high day rates, um, and then a couple of rigs for for Chevron. And so they make up the vast majority of our $10.2 billion backlog that we reported at the end of 2019. So um, unlike many of our competitors, we've got great visibility to future cash flows, that will allow us to continue to invest in our assets and the proper maintenance of those assets and our people and their training. Uh, And so, you know, as long as this starts to sort itself out over the next two years, uh, which I believe and hope it will, um, we should be in, uh, at least relatively speaking, a very uh, very solid position vis-à-vis our peer group.
1: Interesting perspective that... Deep water is perhaps more insulated than, than onshore, so I, I appreciate that because of the backlogs, because of the long-term commitments, because it is hard to pivot on a dime in that part of the, um, the drilling cycle. And you do have very strong clients that you're supporting with strong balance sheets.
2: Absolutely right, and that is, that is critical for us. The, the other thing is the, the offshore industry was slower to respond in terms of driving efficiency into, into uh, our businesses. Um, than, than the land business was, but over the course of the this downturn, so since 2014, we have all worked independently and collectively to drive cost out of these, these ultra-deep water uh, projects, and so if you if you look at the cash-break-even costs of some of these ultra-deep water uh, projects, they are very competitive with, with U.S. land. Uh, and so from a cost standpoint, uh, very competitive. The, the difference is... Um, the return cycle is is much shorter in land. You know the the, the cash on cash return is is much uh, shorter in land than it is in some of these offshore projects that may take you know three to five years uh, to to start to get your return. Um, but for, for those companies that really drive the ultra deep water space, like you just said, the the Exxon mobiles the Shell, the BP, the Chevrons, Equinor's of the world, very strong um, balance sheets uh, and and. Very, they, they understand very well that the size of the prize offshore is much greater than it is on land, and so if they look to replace reserves, which they desperately need to do, um, offshore are, starts to look very compelling from an economic standpoint.
1: Terrific. Um, really helpful. What about the long-term repercussions on the services side of the industry? What do you foresee? Do you see consolidations, bankruptcies? It's clearly still incredibly fragmented, as you and I have talked about in the past. Does this current situation drive a, a completely different operating model or business model in the services side?
2: I think it definitely could. Uh, you know, in our space, I'll speak to our space specifically, the, I have long said that consolidation is absolutely necessary in the offshore drilling space uh, in order for us to, to once again be a, uh, a really healthy uh, business and to really improve the industry structure. Um, we have done a bit of that. Um, we, have, uh, we acquired Songha Offshore out of Norway. We also acquired Ocean Rig, uh, and we acquired a third interest in joint venture for, for another rig to TransOcean to Noriga. So uh, we, have, we have certainly been uh, out in front of this and, and led the way for offshore drillers. Um, we have been very, um, very specific in our approach to consolidation. We are only interested in high-spec, so newer high-spec assets in the harsh environment and ultra-deep water space. We've also been very specific that given the, the uncertainty, continued uncertainty in the market, and especially now, we can't do anything that compromises near-term liquidity. Well, unfortunately, that, that really narrows your, your opportunity set. Um, it, you're really focused on high-end assets and only the ultra-deep water and harsh environment space, and then all of our competitors have stressed balance sheets. <laughs> and so there's really no opportunity uh, for, for us that we see today uh, to go out and, and do any more consolidation in the near term. Now that could all change, and especially with this with this latest shock to the system, we have, uh, like I said, some very um, some competitors with very distressed balance sheets. Who, if 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 they are unable to to secure new contracts that actually uh, generate sufficient cash flow to service the debt, they will be facing restructuring. And so, what those companies look like after restructuring may may change um, uh, our view on them, uh, and, and may change some of our other competitors' view on them. So. Um, Short answer, yes, we believe in consolidation, believe it would be healthy for, for our piece of the industry. We would like to continue to lead that, um, but we have a very narrow focus. Um, but as you say, in this, this this latest crisis will, will certainly lead to some restructuring in, in the offshore drilling space and across services.
1: Yeah, that's definitely one of the expectations. One of the other topics you and I have talked about in the past is what can operators and providers, service providers, do better together. Any thoughts that you want to share on what you, what the operators could do that might make things um, more of a win-win-win as we move through this really challenging time?
2: You know, we've, we've, we, as an industry, we've struggled with that uh, over the course of the last, you know, four, five years. Um, we have recognized some some real opportunities where working together we can we can bring about efficiencies where everybody wins, um, but it's still a challenge. I mean, at at its core, there's still a bit of a um, a combative, if you will, almost at times, business model where where service providers are are paid um, by the hour or by the day, uh, and uh, so where is the incentive actually to deliver? Uh, wells faster for, for the, the service providers and then the operator. Uh, that's what they want to do. They want to deliver safe, efficient, low-cost wells uh, and, and do that as quickly as possible. And so there is a bit of an adversarial uh, relationship driven by the, the business model that we have today. We have been able to to solve that with some customers uh, where where you look at uh, maybe accepting a lower base day rate uh, and and then a, a much higher opportunity for a performance bonus Um the, that works with a select few customers and a select few uh, geographic markets. Uh, and the challenge with that is as you deliver as a, as a drilling contractor and you get that you earn that, that high performance bonus, the next contract the, the hurdle is raised and so the opportunity to earn that bonus is diminished. Uh, and so, then, in, to, in order to compensate for that, you raise the day rate, uh, the base day rate, a little bit more. And so, y- you ultimately get back to the place where you're just working on a on a day rate again. And so, I, I think the biggest challenge for for us is is just the business model and the way it's set up it's, itself. Uh, and. And candidly, if we couldn't solve that as an industry over the course of the last five years, um, I'm, I'm not sure that that we can. Uh, I will say that we have worked really well with uh, with operators, certain operators and and certain other third- party service providers um, to certain streamlined operations um, uh, enhance safety, enhance performance. Uh, and so that has worked well, and that's that's a big reason you've seen the break even uh, levels offshore really come down um, so much over the course of the last uh, the last several years.
1: So are you seeing the behavior that we saw in 2014 where we had the big oil price crash and immediately producers started just picking up the phone and saying, I demand a 30 to 50% rate cut right now? Because it seems to me from the outside that because this is a health crisis, there is more of a moral and ethical obligation to try to manage this in a, in a more sensitive way, but what's the reality? Are you getting those phone calls in today's environment?
2: It's, it's a mix of both, Regina. We've, we've had on those, I, I think all of our customers across the board have the first priority for them and for us has obviously been, uh, how do we maintain safe, efficient um, operations on our rigs and protect all of our crew members on our rigs? And that has been the, the almost the exclusive focus across the board. Um, we have seen, um, and you've certainly read about. I'm sure um, certain operators canceling contracts uh, with certain drilling contractors over the course of the last uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, we have been asked uh, by select customers to provide some relief, uh, and so we're in conversations with them about what that might look like, uh, given given this crisis. Um, but but I think it, it's a little bit of a mix. I think everybody does believe. They do believe that they have a, a moral imperative here, and so the first priority is to make sure that we keep our people safe uh, and healthy. Um, but they also recognize the impact that this has had on on their respective businesses and future cash flows. And so, you know, we've received a few letters uh, about you know, relief, if you will, not specific demands for a 20% here or 50% there, um, but just hey, we need to be thinking about how we can collectively uh, drive cost out of out of the the operations as we as we get through this crisis and and really get into this new reality of, of uh, much lower oil prices.
1: It's good to it's good to hear that it's more of a mix. So Sorry.
2: it has been. You know, my, my concern is that if the if the past is any indicator, as soon as we get this virus contained uh, and everyone feels like we've we've really got it under control, that that the uh, the pressure uh, from our customers starts to build.
1: Yes, I can see that, and similar similar situation for us. Let me pivot for a moment you know before the global pandemic reached its current proportions one of the hottest topics was climate change and decarbonization it wasn't that long ago that the senior executives from all over the world and senior leaders were in davos and talking about the the need to decarbonize and it re- it reached um, a level of vocalness that it hadn't before what are your thoughts on the energy transition itself does this um, current situation accelerate the need to focus on climate change or do you think it actually puts it more on the back burner
2: I, I think it probably at least in the near term puts it a little more on the back burner um, just while everybody deals with this crisis and 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 the carnage that's going to to follow around around the globe uh, and so I, I think it i think it temporarily puts it on on the back burner um having said that there's there's no doubt that um, a few things on that. Number one, I think that the world is going to continue to need uh, oil and gas as a as a source of energy. Um, I think there's still a billion people in the world that don't even have electricity, uh, and everybody wants a higher standard of living, and, and energy provides that. And, and oil and gas is going to be required in order to support that. Um, I think if you look at the you know the developing nations, if you will, I think that's probably going to be their their primary source of energy, and that you see the uh, the more developed countries, uh, you know. Western world and, and, and Europe and Scandinavia uh, start to meet more of their energy demands uh, with um, uh, with more um, uh, carbon footprint-friendly uh, uh, technologies. Um, but, but I think there's always going to be, at least in our lifetime, strong demand for oil and gas. And so I'd like to get that, that out of the way first. I think that we as an industry need to deliver that oil and gas in a more environmentally responsible way. Uh, and so that's really where um, TransOcean is focusing its efforts and, and uh in its investments uh, and and that is how can we deliver energy and deliver our services in a more uh, energy friendly way and so we have um, developed a few technologies uh, in, in order to do that one is what we call our hybrid power system which we deployed on the first floating rig in the industry um, uh, first floating rig in the industry to have hybrid power and that's on the transition Spitsbergen operating for Equinor and Norway um, and uh, and you know we just deployed it end of last year. We're pulling all the data now to to ensure that it's actually delivering the benefits uh, that we had modeled, uh, and so far it, very encouraging. Um, uh, you know, ten to fifteen percent lower fuel consumption, uh, which obviously decreases our, our carbon footprint, also reduces our costs. So so that's uh, that's a benefit as well. Uh, and so you know we're we're looking at technologies like that now. I, I said that this you know this crisis is going to put that on the back burner a little bit. I mean. All of this requires capital, Uh, and so uh, we're we're proving the technology out right now. Our intent is, if it works as intended, which so far so good, uh, that you start to deploy it across the fleet, but again, that requires funding, and uh, right now across the space, um, with all the uncertainty, cash is going to be absolutely paramount for, for our business as well as uh, all the other service providers in, in the space, and so I think it slows the, the pace that we originally intended to deploy uh, some of these technologies, and, uh, and that's really kind of the primary driver behind my, my comment that I think that, that it puts this on the on the back burner uh, a little bit until we until we get through this this crisis, uh, contain COVID nineteen, start to get back to a a, a more normal environment, uh, and then I think the the conversation will will then start to pick up again, and the pressure will start to mount again.
1: I did see your hybrid power ships and I think that's incredibly innovative. So congratulations to you. Yeah, thank you. I know these are tough times. We know it won't last forever. So to that end, what positive message or closing remarks would you leave for our energy industry listeners that we can take away from today?
2: You know, it's I I think right now, I think everybody's focused on the right things, which is let's let's get through this crisis together and then and then determine what's next. I I, you know, our, from my perspective, I, I would just, you know, we're, we're trying not to uh, panic, not to make any knee-jerk uh, decisions, uh, trying to see how this uh, pandemic plays out, uh, and then determine uh, what really to do with the business. Uh, obviously we are we are looking at opportunities to further reduce our costs and become more efficient uh, in the face of this uncertainty. We went through a lot of that uh, from 2014 to, to today. Um, but there are still opportunities we think where we can we can become uh, more efficient as a business, and I think across the space everyone has to do that. Um, I think in, in terms of, of hopeful comments, um, I, I really do think the world will will find a way to contain uh, and, and stop COVID-19. I think we will get back to um, our, our old lives uh, here over the next uh, couple of months, hopefully. Um, and I really do think that that this. This market share grab, uh, if you will, by, by Russia and Saudi Arabia is temporary. Uh, and so if we can get both the supply side and the demand side to, to get to more normal levels and get oil back up to the, you know, something approaching maybe $60, it doesn't even need to be that high with the break-even cost the way they are, uh, I think I think we can start to see the strong demand for oil and gas and all of our services again. And so that's, that's what I'm holding on to. I don't know if I will be correct, um, but uh, um, we have to have some hope.
1: Well, I share your enthusiasm. Thank you, Jeremy. I look forward to being able to see you face-to-face on the other side of this uh, challenging situation that we find ourselves in. But thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights today.
2: Yeah, thanks, Regina. Be safe.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on the Double Black Swan event and the offshore drilling industry. A transcript of this episode is currently available on KPMG's Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.